Hello, everyone. How are you doing? And welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where we have the discussions that inform, entertain, and empower educators to be the change. I am your host, Dr. Will, and I am here today with Dr. Shanta Whitaker. How are you doing, Doc? I'm fine. How are you doing? Ooh, you know, today was good until I got that <laughs> phone call about that Chrome cart, and I was like, uh. <laughs> so we got to, I got to call to somebody tonight so we can get that thing fixed. But other than that, it's all good. <laughs> uh, so people, if you've been watching the show uh, or listening to the podcast, you know that we have been doing different shows on diversity, inclusion, and careers in STEM uh, because that is a, a, a field that we keep hearing that is growing and so many jobs are available, yet they say there are not a lot of applicants. And then we hear about the the BS with the pipeline, which, okay, I'm not going there. Uh, so <laughs> I see your, see your face. Uh, and part of it is, you know, I, I know someone who works in Silicon Valley and she told me how they recruit and she gave me the 411. So mm -hmm. she's like, she like, that pipeline is just a lie. Okay, so we're going to be talking about, the title of the show is, to, is uh, STEMfinity and Beyond. And uh, we're going to let Doc break down some knowledge for us, and hopefully you'll be inspired and, and we'll learn more. So, uh, Dr. Whitaker, what drew you to study biology and microbiology? Um, <clears throat> I say... Um when I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, actually, because I really like history a lot. Um, history was my subject all through um, middle school and through most of high school, actually. And um, then in my senior year of high school, there were two options of science classes to take that were both counted to be college level. So there was college level physics and then advanced placement in biology. And I actually chose my science class based on the trip that was associated with it. So physics had a trip to Bush Gardens and um, advanced placement biology had a trip to Virginia Beach. And so I ended up doing the advanced placement biology because I had never been to the beach before and it was an opportunity to go to the beach. <laughs> um, but my professor, I mean, my teacher was amazing. Um, Mrs. Fisher, still remember her to this day. Um, she made science so interesting, and when I, by the time I left that class, I had decided I was going to be a science major when I went to college, um, and so that sort of was my initial pivot to um, science, which was yay. Um, and as far as microbiology, microbiology ended up happening my sophomore year in college, because I was a biology major. And my faculty advisor, Dr. Madhu, was a microbiologist. And when I came back from my freshman internship and decided I didn't want to do medicine anymore, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So he suggested I start looking at some research, um, um, summer internships for my next year, for my sophomore year summer. And I ended up at the University of California, Berkeley um, during the summer. And I worked with anthrax. So I think that sort of was my initial, like, okay, microbiology is really cool, um, and what can I possibly do with that? So I really, it sort of gave me a way to so, sort of still stay with the clinical aspect and have 
um, an understanding of how pathogens affect our bodies. And I just found it very intriguing how something so small can be so damaging to our bodies. Anthrax. Mm -hmm. Dangerous. I know. First thing I worked, one of the first bugs I worked with was anthrax. Okay. Uh, So you are a graduate of an HBCU. Mm -hmm. And we have seen a a huge increase in the number of uh, black students who are choosing to attend HBCUs. Yeah. Where do you see the role of HBCUs and building the next generation of leaders in STEM? Um, I think HBCUs are very important, not just from the standpoint of the academic training, because when I think about my experience at Virginia Union, that's where I went to um, undergrad, um, the part that benefited me the most, it wasn't so much, I mean, yeah, the science, the curriculum was great. Um, it was the support that I got as a student where I didn't have to deal with sometimes with a lot of minorities that go to predominantly white institutions have to experience, you know, I didn't deal with the racism. I didn't deal with the discrimination. Um, a historically black college sort of represents a safe space where you're kind of free to just like explore and become who you're, you're sort of meant to become. And so that really was nurturing. And plus the class sizes were much smaller. I mean, I think in my, my year, there might've been like maybe 20, 30 um, biology majors versus like you go to these bigger institutions, you're looking at 200, 300 of these majors. And so it affords you the ability to get to know your faculty advisors much better. Um, You have a lot more hands-on experiences. And I felt like um, the way how the school helped me out the most was just having, having that faculty advisor that was very committed to my success and help, and he helped me navigate um, the PhD space, which I was not familiar with at all prior to um, coming to college. So I think it's mainly the support that the HBCUs give. I mean, because everyone has a standardized curriculum of what you need to experience as a particular major. Um, it's more so the support, and I feel like that support definitely um, has continued on even post PhD, post all my other work. I mean, I can still go back on my undergrad campus and still have my faculty advisor support. Awesome, awesome. So what are the career opportunities available to those who pursue degrees in STEM-related disciplines, and how have you been able to carve out your career? Um, so I'd say, number one, to be open. Um, I thought when I started off initially, um, post-PhD, that I might do something more academic-related, um, and I ended up um, I mean, I did a, post-doc, a, a postdoctoral fellowship, and I decided that I didn't necessarily want to be at the laboratory bench anymore. So then it led to like, all right, well, what else can I do with this science training? So I ended up working as the higher ed admin for Yale College. Um, and that was cool because you ha- I had the opportunity to um, see what that looked like. Um, I think for science folks, it just depends on, if I look at my classmates from both undergrad and graduate that were, you know, either biology or microbiology majors, there's a wide variety of things that people are doing. So I have classmates from undergrad that are in pharmaceutical, you know, they're working in pharmaceuticals, they're doing, they're either at the research bench working, you know, in the lab and in one of those situations, I have others that are faculty members um, that are, you know, 
doing the advising to undergrads, whether it be at a HBCU or at a predominantly white institution. I have classmates that are in science policy. Um, that's another big space to go into that are here in DC and um, doing a lot of great things within um, science policy. So it becomes more broad. So they're not just doing microbiology policy, they're doing policy related to all sciences. Because once you get a degree in science, especially if you go on and get a PhD in the sciences, sort of think of that you know everything and that you can easily translate your initial training into other areas, which it is because the PhD gives you the train, any advanced degree, um, specifically the PhD, um, gives you the training to be able to become a SME, a, a subject matter expert in any area um, and to come up to speed fast. So those are some of the weird things that people are doing. Um, I totally went outside of the box um, and partially because um, nowadays for academia, not to say that it's not possible or impossible to become a professor, it's just a lot more competition. Um, and so a lot of people need to consider what they would do outside of the academy because those spaces are harder to come by. Um, and so you find a lot of people going into either consulting, like I'm doing, I'm a consultant, um, or um, doing like crazy things, starting their own business. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's so many options. And I think the STEM background just gives you the knowledge base to, um, that shows that you're a critical thinker, shows you that you know how to do, um, that you potentially know how to do analytics. And a lot of companies look for people with analytical skills. Um, and I think all, a STEM degree is not a waste because you can, literally translate it into potentially anything um, that you want to. So I've sort of done that myself instead of staying in a traditional science career. Awesome. And, and I'm glad that you brought up your journey and the different avenues that you have been looking at and other people are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, because I remember when I graduated and even though I, you know, I'm not in the STEM field, when mm -hmm. I approached someone at the university, they're like, oh, your research is cool, but you know, adjunct. And I said, well, who, okay, what's adjunct pay? Mm -hmm. And when they told me, I was like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> are you serious? Like, yeah. do you know that from consulting, I can go spend a day out of school and make more money in one day that you want to pay me for a whole semester of work? Mm -hmm. uh, so, for those who are watching, you know, it, it's. I'm glad you brought that up that they need to be open to di the different careers that may mm -hmm. exist, but it's unfortunate that a lot of universities still, when they bring people in, still sort of prepare them for jobs in academia, yep. even though they themselves know that you may be, you know, mm -hmm. your doctor advisor or people on committee. Okay. Y'all mm -hmm. may be full time, but you know, a lot of people in your department aren't. I will say, um, like from the time that I've graduated Yale to now, um, that they've changed a lot. So I finished my PhD nine years ago and almost nine years ago, it'd be nine years next month. Um, and when I look at it from how they were when I graduated, my PhD advisor like almost had a heart attack. I mean, I did a, a, a postdoc, but she was upset the fact that it wasn't a traditional postdoc. I didn't go to another academic institution. I didn't go to the NIH. I did more of an applied postdoc, and she didn't like that because she was like, "Oh my God, what are you going to do? You're not going to become a professor or something like that." <laughs> um, 
but since I've, um, for the past three years, I just rolled off the board this year, but I was on the board for the graduate school at Yale, um, and we um, ran this activity, um, this, this day-long workshop every year called Where Do I Go From Yale? And it's a day-long workshop filled with panels and alumni that come back and talk about their different careers that they have accomplished since they finished their PhDs or their masters um, in different disciplines. So it's sort of to expose the graduate students to alternative careers outside of the academy. And it seems like a lot of the, the faculty are starting to become more receptive to that because they recognize the fact that they're not, they're really, I mean, I feel like getting a faculty position nowadays, especially the ones that these Yale ones are going to be looking for, they're looking for, you know, these research one top tier institutions. And those are like unicorns. They're hard to come by nowadays. You literally have to wait for someone to die before um, you get a position. Um, that combined with, you know, federal cutting of, you know, research funds. So it's just really hard, not impossible, but just hard, harder. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad that my school is becoming more receptive. I hear you. I, hear you. I, tough. I, I know that there are some people, you know, say, oh, yeah, you know, there's some opportunities if you are wanting to go to South Dakota or somewhere because people are not trying to flock to move there. But a brother's yeah. not trying to go to Montana either. Nah. <laughs> you know, so I knew that, you know, <laughs> My space in academia, if that is for me in the cars one day, is going to have to be on the admin side yep. and, and not in, in the classroom. Mm. So you're out here working. You're accomplishing great things, people. You know, when, when you Google her, because I know you're going to do so after you watch this video, you want to know, well, who is Dr. Whitaker? You're going to see that she's really out there putting in a lot of work. What kind of networks have you been able to build? What, what are organizations or different things that are available to, to provide support for those women or people of a color who work in STEM fields? Okay. So I think one of my, um, one of my colleagues from Yale, her name is um, Dr. Jediah Isler. Um, she started Vanguard STEM, um, and she was the first um, African-American um, to graduate with a PhD in astrophysics from Yale. Um, she graduated a few years after I finished up, and um, I remember when she came to Yale and everything, because, you know, black folks know people, I mean, black folks know the black folks at Yale, because not that many of us, especially in the PhD level, um, especially in the sciences, too. So she started, like, that community for um, definitely women in STEM to have sort of, like, a space to talk about. So there's, like, they have a Facebook group. She does podcasts. She does... Um, all kinds of different things. There's also like the Women of Color STEM Conference. Um, there's a, the Leadership Alliance, um, which is a summer program that, um, that you can do it as an undergrad. They also have um, support networks for their alumni from the program. So they honored like their first 100 PhDs back in 2008, which I was one of them, which has made me feel really old. Um, I think now they're, they're up to 200, their first 200 PhDs. Um, but it's a very um, strong support network. And then just utilizing your, your networks yourself, your personal networks, your school networks, um, because you built that community um, when you were in school. Um, and then of course, like Azure, you know, LinkedIn is a great resource of 
just meeting people and networking with other people that are particularly in the same space. And then Twitter, which is surprising. So there's a hashtag on black and STEM. There's also ones for different, there's other groups that have their STEM um, um, connections within Twitter, which I find very useful as well. Um, so I've been able to connect with a lot of um, people within STEM or that are transitioning outside of STEM into other careers on, in that space. Because I feel like I'm sort of like, I have STEM, but I'm not doing STEM as much anymore. So I don't necessarily identify myself completely. I mean, I'll always be a scientist, and that's what my thing is. But um, my day-to-day -day life is not science anymore. So it's nice to find these communities and spaces where you can have these conversations. Awesome. awesome. And Twitter, Twitter is amazing. Is Mm -hmm. I, you know, I actually wrote my dissertation on teachers using Twitter for professional oh, cool. development. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to be big. I'm trying to be big. <laughs> uh, but because I, but I knew the space for the educators, what their network mm -hmm. was like. And it just so happens that it doesn't matter what field you're in, there are people there who are there sharing resources, they're talking to each other, supporting yeah. each other. So it's a, a great avenue that way. Mm -hmm. uh, so, what are you seeing in, in terms of, I guess I'm wanting to get to, there are going to be kids of color mm -hmm. who, whether they want to go on the trip or like yourself, uh, or they're excited, like science gets them, right? They're like, mm -hmm. I love this science. Mm -hmm. I love this technology. But when they look out and they see, who is out there mm -hmm. a lot of times they don't see themselves yeah so they ended up going well i like science i know a lot of black teachers so i'll major in education and teach mm -hmm. you know, biology or chemistry there or mm -hmm. i'll go work it for a company what do you say to them and to schools to actually encourage them to follow their passions and major in STEM related fields? Um, I feel like it can be hard. I, mean, I didn't necessarily, I mean, I went to a black school, so of course I was seeing like a whole bunch of black professors. I mean, I had a lot of professors that were, you know, other, other races, of course, um, but my faculty advisor was African, well, African. Um, a lot of my professors were African American or African. Um, but I think where I ran into that more so was when I went and did my PhD, um, where most of the faculty were, they didn't look like me. Um, there was one faculty member that was African-American tenured that was in the School of Public Health where I did, where my PhD research was conducted. Um, and I felt like, well, yes, I didn't have a lot of people that looked like me, but what I did have was a whole bunch of people around me that supported me. And so I don't necessarily think, yes, you need to, it's good to have role models that look like you. And I think sometimes you have to place yourself in a position where you actively seek them out. I mean, nowadays you have access to search, you know, anywhere for these people, whether it's, you know, using the web. I have a web like that when I was in college. You can literally search, you know, for you're black, you can search for a black scientist or see what pops up. If you're Hispanic, you can, you know, do a search for Hispanic scientists and see what pops up and reach out to these people. Because I think a lot of them, 
would be more than willing to, you know, talk to you about their career path and how they got to where they were and even be a mentor potentially and help you navigate the space. I have an undergrad from my undergraduate institution now that's going through the medical school process and me talking about that. And I just wrote her a letter of recommendation for her to get into this program um, after her undergrad because she's trying to take a few years off before she goes to medical school. Um, but she, you know, she actively searched for a network put her in place with other alum, you know, alumni that have come before her that are in the space, in the sciences, like she is, and to give her that support. I think it's a matter of um, being proactive, which is a great characteristic to start early anyway, because for the rest of your life, you're going to have to be proactive with finding mentors. Even as you get older, <laughs> you're going to have to be proactive about finding mentors to help you navigate these spaces. So that's important if you really want to find someone that looks like you that can support you, but also recognize that there are a lot of allies that don't look like you, that have different backgrounds that you than you, that recognize your hard work and recognize your drive and will support you and open up doors for you um, that you wouldn't have been able to open yourself. Excellent, excellent. Thank you again, Dr. Whitaker, for being a guest on the show. Uh, always are good to connect with you mm -hmm. and and people. Uh, this is going up on uh, LinkedIn. This is going up on iTunes and SoundCloud. And you'll be able to check out the blog posts and ways to connect with Dr. Whitaker on Twitter. So people, as always, invest in you, ADU. Peace. Thank you. Thank you.